Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Wow. Can you just feel him in the room right now? Let's just take a moment and just continue to ride this wave. Let's just close our eyes and just put our affection, our attention on him. You know, the hour we're living in demands a fresh revelation of the resurrected Christ. Let's just open up our mouths and begin praying in the spirit. Jesus, we prepare our hearts. We anchor our souls in your coming. This morning, we become students of your return. Lord, let there be a, a, a revival in your church to prepare herself as a bride that is pure, spotless, blameless. And Lord, in this hour where, where darkness is raging, we just, we just say Romans, the, in the, the prayer in Romans, where the God of peace crushes Satan under our feet. Even in, after the fall of man, the Lord prophesied that to the devil, that Jesus would come before there was a problem, he had a solution, that you would bruise his heel, but he would crush your head. And so we pray that the crushing of darkness would come right now, that darkness would be crushed under the peace of God. Let the peace of God reign in our nation. Let it reign in our hearts. Let it expose every scheme of the enemy. And Lord, we just exalt Jesus not only as Savior, but as Lord. You have lordship over this nation. You get to tell us what to do. <laughs> and Lord, we just exalt you this morning. We just bless you in Jesus' name. It's so good. Pastor David did an amazing job last week uh, introducing us to this author of the book of Revelation, the John the Beloved. And to read Revelation, we have to read it as a love story. We have to read it as a poem And this man named John... Uh, exiled to this island of encounter, was burned in oil but just would not die supernaturally. He had just this hand of God on him. And then out of nowhere, this revelation of Jesus comes. And today I want to actually dive in to the introduction to this book, the Jesus's uh, declaration to these seven churches. I want to really hit on these first three chapters of the, of the book. So today's going to be more of a teaching than a preaching message. And so I want us just to be students of encounter this morning, students of, of his coming. So, you know, like, like I said at the beginning, I feel more and more that through this study, Jesus is urging his church to begin asking ourselves, how do we want to stand before him in eternity? You know, if, if I were to tell you that Jesus is coming back next Thursday, I know no man knows the day or the time, but hypothetically, if I, would, if I were to tell you Jesus is coming back next Thursday, how would you change your priorities from today until Thursday? Everything would change. 
everything would change. And so I wanted to urge us this morning to begin living with the end in mind and taking inventory of what is Jesus's value system for his end time church and how does it line up to my value system? And so we're going to go through these seven, this letter to the seven churches. Jesus tells us his, his value system for the end time bride, what our individual's lives should look like and what we should look like as a corporate body of Christ. So everything about our week would change if we knew Jesus is coming back Thursday, right? And so uh, we're just going to take the next few minutes and just align our hearts with Jesus. What do you like? What, what are you calling us to in this hour? And uh, you know, like I said at the beginning, the hour we're living in right now, it demands a fresh revelation of who he is. You know, when, when there's an urgency in the earth, it calls for a change of priorities, right? Like if I get mad at my wife for not putting up her dishes <laughs> and I'm just stirred up about it, I'm just mad and that's taking up my whole day, but then God forbid one of us gets sent to the hospital, how many of you know those dirty dishes aren't that important anymore? <laughs> Why? Because a sense of urgency demands a change of priority. And I believe this is an hour of urgency in the bride of Christ right now. It is not a time for patty prayers. It is a time for this, this bridal talk that says, Lord, if you don't speak to me, what do I have? I have nothing if you don't speak. And so we're going to just be talking about the urgency of, urgency of this hour and the priority that Jesus is asking us to live by. Can you just feel it in the air can you feel the urgency in the hour? You know, I've only been alive 25 years on this planet, <laughs> but never in my 25 years have I lived in a time where it has been easier to be offended than it is now. You know, it takes an intentional effort to not be offended, right? Offense comes cheap, and it, it actually takes, it takes a price to pay to keep your heart tender before the Lord. And I heard this quote that I want to share. I heard it said that offense always attracts whatever information is needed to legitimize its existence. Let it digest. I'll say it again. Offense always attracts whatever information is needed that legitimizes its existence. And uh, for example, I'll, I'll use Pastor John as, as an example. If I am offended at Pastor John, and uh, you know, how many of you know it's okay to be angry but do not sin? It's what do you do with that anger? So I have an offense. If I do not bring that to the Lord to heal, then my heart will, that offense will begin trying to find little things he's saying to feed and to grow. I'll be looking at every text message in a weird way, every phone call to feed this thing in my heart called offense. And that is what is running rampant in the world right now. <laughs> And it's one thing for the world to act like the world, but it's a different thing for the church to act like the world. <laughs> He's calling us to a different standard, you know. I could post on social media, God is good. And I bet you if I had, you know, a new, another level of influence, more followers, I bet you people would be like, but God is faithful too. Do you not believe God is faithful? He's only, I can't, I can't follow you anymore. I'm going to unfollow you. God is, you only think God is good. And that's just this hour we're living in right now where it's like everything is offense really. And um, in Revelation 1, 
It describes Jesus as having eyes of fire. And I believe he has burning eyes because he has a burning heart. And, uh, you know, it says, if we just say these words out loud in Revelation, a blessing comes. So how much more of a blessing comes when we pray these words out loud? So one, one prayer I like to do in this hour is, Jesus, show me your eyes of fire. Lord, burn away everything in my heart that hinders the flow of God in my life. Burn away all offense. Burn away all chaff. Burn away everything that hinders your flow in my life because this is an hour of urgency, <laughs> right? And, and the fire of, of this hour is exposing it's, it's exposing what is gold, silver, and precious stone, or what is wood, hay, and stubble. And in this, the fire of God is here. <laughs> and Jesus, we just ask, let us gaze into your eyes of fire this morning. We want to behold you. We want to behold you rightly. Burn away everything in your bride and your, your body of Christ that hinders your flow on the earth. So the goal in this hour is to rise above it's to, to come up higher. It, it requires a new revelation of this resurrected Jesus. And so the, the goal of this book of Revelation, I believe, you know, the word revelation, it means revealing. Or, or it means unveiling. And it is the Father's greatest pleasure to reveal and glorify his son. That goes with any parent. It, it should be your greatest pleasure to reveal and glorify your child, their giftings, everything. And that's what the Lord is doing in this hour is revealing and glorifying his son. Notice the book of Revelation is not called the revealing of the beast. It's not called the revelation of the plan. It's not called the revelation of the Antichrist. It is called the revelation of Jesus. And so... Come on, give him praise. <laughs> so as we approach this book, we are not approaching it to understand the plan. We're approaching it to understand the man behind the plan. We don't want to unveil the plan. We want to unveil the man of, of who he is. And, and really, no other book but Revelation gives us more opportunity to approach with our intellect than with our heart. This is a book that, that for centuries, I believe, many people have approached it with head knowledge, just trying to figure it out, you know? And this is a book that requires it to be read with a tender, tender heart. And uh, like I said at the beginning, tenderness, it, it, it comes costly in this hour, right? It takes an intentional effort to have a, a tender heart. And one of the one of the weapons the enemy uses against a tender heart is familiarity. You know, uh, familiarity, repetition, the more we go to church, the more we sing songs and say words like praise God, the more it just becomes familiar to us. And phrases like praise God just turn into like, oh, praise God, I'm doing great. Instead, like, does praise God, is it just something we say to cover up what's really going on? Or does it really mean praise the Lord, praise God? And so I believe the Lord is truly tenderizing us in this hour to this specific book. And, you know, I want to talk about this story before I dive into Revelation. Um, there's this story in Luke chapter 4. So this is Jesus' arrival on the scene. This is his uh, first demonstration of public ministry. 
And many times, uh, Scripture can lose effect uh, because we, uh, we're, we're, we are reading it with the outcome in mind, right? And so Jesus' first entrance onto the earth, this is what happened. So I want to give you some backstory first. So like today, we are contending for the second coming of Jesus, right? So when Jesus, before Jesus was coming, the people of God were contending for his first coming on the earth. And so imagine for centuries, the people of God are, are saying, come, send the Messiah, send the Messiah, send the Messiah. Well, out of nowhere, here comes the Messiah. He's here. And it's his first act of public ministry. He goes to a synagogue, and he, it is routine for everyone in the church to read a scroll of Scripture. And so it just so happens to be Jesus' turn to read this scroll and so it's his first act of public ministry. He gets up in front of the church and opens the scroll. Picture this. Jesus' first entrance onto the earth is opening a scroll, prophesying what will happen when he introduces his second entrance onto the earth. He will open the scroll, read the seal, and unleash heaven on the earth. So he opens a scroll. It's important to know, it had been 400 years since a prophet had been on the scene. It's been 400 years since any of the people of God have felt the wind of the Spirit. 400 years since they had felt what we felt in worship today. 400 years of a drought in their hearts. 400 years without a word from the Lord. And here comes the one they've been contending for for centuries right in front of them. And he begins to open the scroll and read the words of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I can just picture this. The people in that church look at each other. Do you feel the wind? Do you feel that? I have never felt peace like that in my life. I have, could, could this be the one standing in front of us and I believe the room was pregnant with the potential revelation of the first coming of the Messiah the church was this close to getting up but one voice I want to say one voice of familiarity spoke up and said hey isn't this just the carpenter's son isn't this just Joseph's kid and immediately the potential for the people of God to have God right in front of them, what they've been contending for for years, the coming of the Messiah, instantly in a moment, dies. Familiarity wars against revelation. One voice of familiarity. I want to suggest that the same tactic that the enemy used then as he is using now <laughs> to destroy the revelation of Jesus' first coming, he's trying to do it to destroy the revelation of his second coming. And this isn't escapism. This isn't like, let's just get out of here. This is romance. The spirit and the bride say, come. And, and I want to ask, does familiarity blind our hearts to miss him when he's right in front of us today? Does familiarity blind our hearts when we're sitting in front of the TV and we hear that whisper say, come and be with me? Do we say yes? Or does familiarity blind our hearts? And what, what ultimately killed Jesus? I want to suggest that it was the joining of the political spirit and the religious spirit that killed him. It was the Roman Empire, 
mixed with the religious Pharisees. What do we see running rampant today in culture? <laughs> the political spirit and the religious spirit. It's the same tactic and it's being exposed to the light so it can be properly dealt with. <laughs> you know, it's so easy to become numb to statements like, Jesus died for me. And it's like, do we just say that or do we have a conviction that moves our heart to tears when we say his name? Jesus died for me. We forget that God himself, God humbled himself and became a cell in a teenager's womb. A teenager carried God in her womb to birth his, her, his first coming. What would it take for the people of God to live in a way that we carry the Lord in our womb to birth the second coming, the womb of our hearts, the womb of our spirits? She carried him in her womb. She birthed him on the earth. He was not born in a palace like other kings were. He was born inconvenienced by being in a manger. He wasn't, he wasn't born like a lion king on top of a mountain where everyone could see. He was born in hiddenness with, with sheep. What kind of God is this to come in so lowly, to come in so hidden? This God who lived 30 years of, of with no notoriety whatsoever, <laughs> 30 years of working with his hands with wood. This is God. 30 years of no one knowing who he is. And finally, when he steps on the scene, he doesn't step in with this militant revolution to conquer Rome. He steps in saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he ushered in the kingdom of God with signs, miracles, and wonders instead of with swords, ammunition, and the strength of men's legs. This is our God who, who his own creation, the hands that formed the world was driven with nails into them by his own creation. My conquering king who, who wore a crown of thorns that was humiliated. When we say Jesus died for us, do we know what we're saying? <laughs> do we know what we're saying? The same human race that was about to nail his body to a tree the night before that happened, he knelt down and washed their feet. This is the Lord. This is our God. And you know, there, there's a depth of God, I believe, where we will cry just by reading the genealogies in Scripture. There's, there's a depth of God. You know those things, those, those genealogies that we skip through? Jesus said, the scriptures speak of me. That means those things in the Bible that we skip through. There is a depth of God where you will weep over the genealogies because they are unto him. They speak unto him, his bloodline, his lineage. And the word is not for our entertainment. It's for our transformation. This is who this Jesus is. So what I'm doing right now, I just want to whet our appetite for what we're about to step into in the book of Revelation. We must approach this revelation, this book with the heart that says, if you don't speak, it's as though I'm dead inside. King David said that in Psalms 28.1. He said, Lord, if you are silent to me, I might as well be dead because man cannot live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God, apart from you, I am nothing. And this is the, the type of urgency and ache and hunger we must approach these letters with urgency. Pastor David's been sharing about the Hebrides revival. How many of you have heard of the Hebrides revival? It's a beautiful story. I'm not going to go into it, but 
I read this quote recently of someone who visited the Hebrides and asked people about what it was like and and what they thought, and this is what he said. When I went to the Hebrides and spoke to those who experienced the revival, they couldn't talk about Jesus without weeping. It has been almost 70 years since the glory fell. I want to go out like that, a tender heart all my days. Notice they, they, they weren't talking about the dynamic sermons. <laughs> they weren't talking about uh, how great the speakers were or how, how the room looked or, or what, what, what social media was like. They didn't have social media back then. <laughs> but they couldn't talk about Jesus without weeping. We are entering an hour where that will become normal. We are entering an hour where that will become the new normal. He's here. He's coming. He's coming. And, and this goal is not to understand the plan. It's to understand and unveil the man, the person of Jesus. So are you ready to dive in? Let's open up to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And I'm going to start in verse 12. I think we're going to put it up on the screen. Jesus appeared to John the Beloved. He said this, I turned to see. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. How many of you know when Jesus is inviting us into encounter, he usually will not override our will to get our attention? (laughs) There is an inward turning in our hearts that we have to turn our affections, turn aside, and behold him. We see this with Moses, with the burning bush. It says Moses had to turn aside. That means my affections may be going this way. I need to point my affections this way. When Elijah was depressed on a mountain, God said, Elijah, turn away and go back the way you came. Repent, come up higher. So this invitation, John, turn aside. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the son of man dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were like wool, White as snow, which signifies the eternity, purity, and wisdom like his father. His eyes were like a fiery flame showing us that because he has burning hot eyes, he is a burning heart that seeks to remove and burn away all that hinders the flow of his love in our lives. His feet like, like bronze or brass, which speaks of judgment, sending a prophetic message that he will trample all enemies under his feet who resist his lordship and his leadership. His feet like fine bronze, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. His voice washes and satisfies our hearts like no other. It doesn't just wash our hearts, but his voice satisfies it. It's not so much the words he says, it's just the fact that he's speaking that satisfy our soul. It sounds like waters, and it refreshes us like waters as well. In his right hand, he had seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. I love this part. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. What better response to respond to Jesus when he comes in? I respond by falling on my face like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look. I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death 
in hell, therefore write what you have seen. Let's go ahead and put that first slide up. I'm not a PowerPoint preacher, so I'm going to try this out today. I made some, uh, some slides for us today. So Jesus then begins giving John this, this message, this letter to these seven churches. And these are the five things that, that I point out that Jesus hits and illustrates in this message. Number one, Jesus reveals his value system for the end time church. And one thing we're going to see is, what does he like? Like, how does his value system measure up with our current value system right now as people, as churches around the globe? Number two, he always will give an affirmation for the church. And number three, he gives a correction or rebuke, but he never leaves the church in a rebuke or correction. He always gives a pathway back to repentance, back to living rightly. So he always gives a loving remedy or a pathway for repentance. And number five, he gives a promise or reward to whoever overcomes that, uh, that, that conviction right there. And I want to talk about the rewards. You can put that next slide up. So these I put down, if you want to take a picture of it or I can email these to you, I put down 22 eternal rewards that are listed here in chapters 1 through 3. And these don't just come with salvation automatically. This is an addition to salvation for how we overcome these hindrances of life. You know, it, it, God is not a little league coach. He doesn't give out participation trophies, right? And so just read some of these. Look how beautiful these are. Look, to have anointed eyes to see more, to receive gold to make them rich, to not be hurt by the second death, to eat hidden manna. I don't, I know what manna is like, but I don't know what hidden manna is like. It must be good. <laughs> to sit on his throne. Can you imagine that? To sit on his throne Jesus is in heaven saying, hey, David, you want to sit on my throne for a little bit? I'm going to go take care of things over here. You earn that reward. Sit on my throne for a little bit. This isn't a metaphor. This is scripture to sit on his throne. 22 eternal rewards. Pastor David uh, shared last, last week about when we were having breakfast and Pastor John's receipt said $22.22, and me being the Bible nerd, I was like, oh my goodness, 22 eternal rewards, and there's 22 chapters in the entire book of Revelation, $22.22. That is the yes of heaven over the series, amen? <laughs> so we can go ahead and go to that next slide. So this is Jesus' message to these seven churches. So he gives out three main corrections or rebukes to these churches. Number one, the, the, the most uh, talked about rebuke that he gives is spiritual passivity or spiritual apathy. That's that language like, hey, you, you abandon your first love. You no longer have a fervent heart. You no longer have a heart that burns. Like the day you first got saved, your heart is no longer burning like it did then. Number two, it's immorality. And number three, it's love of money or, or love of riches. That's, that's like what we see, and we'll see this later in the Laodicean church. Uh, what was happening externally with their riches was not indicative of what was happening internally with their burning heart. So how do we read this? How did it apply to them then, and then how does it apply to us today? And so that's what we're going to talk about. And what, what is tragic to me, though, is that two out of these seven churches he gives absolutely no correction or no affirmation to. 
Did everybody get that? Two out of the seven churches receive absolutely no, sorry, I'm spitting a lot, absolutely no affirmation. <laughs> you know, I can't think of anything more tragic to me to be living my life as a Christian as a, or being in a church or a ministry that brings absolutely no pleasure to the Lord, but it shows us that it is absolutely possible. And I don't even know, wanna know how many churches live like that, but it shows it's absolutely possible. But on the flip side, two, another two out of the seven, he gives no rebukes to. <laughs> so a, another two out of the seven receive no rebukes, which shows us it is absolutely possible to live life to live ministry in a way that is fully pleasing to the Lord where we don't get any correction or, or any rebuke. And so these are the invitations to us in this hour. Oh, Lord, help us. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. So the most important piece that I take away from this letter to the seven churches is this. It reveals to us Jesus' value system for his end-time bride. And so I put two columns here. I put a column right here, earthly success, with, which is what the typical global American church would define as a successful church. And I'm not saying, hey, we're doing it perfect here at Dwell and everybody else is doing it wrong everywhere else. <laughs> we are one bride, we're one body. And on the other column, I have Jesus' uh, measure of success for what he calls success. And um, this is just an astounding two different columns right here. And so the general consensus for success in a, an American church, what, what we would call is, number one, what is attendance like? We think big church, successful church, right? Number two, what is the size of giving? If giving was low that Sunday, then, oh, it wasn't a good Sunday. Number three, what is the popularity, recognition, and size of influence? Compare that with Jesus' value system, a burning heart, oil and gold refined in fire, which comes only by prayer, worship, and intercession. And number three, holiness. What is that? Clean hands and a pure heart. Not once does Jesus rebuke these churches for their attendance being too low or for their size of giving, not once does he rebuke the churches for their influence being too low or they're not well known enough. I'm not saying those things are evil. If these things have, have a place and they are not evil and wicked on their own, but when this column takes precedence over that column, that's when it invites the rebuke of the Lord, right? So this side is not evil. But when it takes precedence over what Jesus is calling success, then that's when we need to take inventory and say, Lord, what am I doing? Can, 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 let me do a priority shift in my life. And the hour we're living in is, is urging the church to change priorities right now. We see the, the, the parable of the ten virgins. It says five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. There was one distinct factor that that uh, made them wise or foolish. It wasn't the five wise had a greater following or influence. It wasn't the five wise uh, led louder lives. It was the wise had oil and the foolish did not. What is oil? Oil is what we get through times like this where we say, Jesus, you're beautiful. Jesus, you're worthy. Jesus, you're wonderful. Times like what we just had in worship. We purchased a tank load of oil in heaven earlier today, and that is a reward we're going to get. And so 
I think these are just astounding uh, to look at. And, you know, it's time we change our values. <laughs> it's time the global church, we have a, a value shift. Urgency changes priorities. And what does Jesus like? It's time we start asking these questions. Lord, what do you like? And he likes praise. He likes thanksgiving. He likes worship. Why don't we spend hours doing that then? <laughs> Why don't we spend hours doing that? The disciples were, were not spending hours trying to increase their influence. It was, how do I increase my reward in heaven? How do I glorify you? That was the message burning in, in the early church. He desires houses of prayer and worship like we're in now. This house we're living in is a house of oil, a house of prayer and worship. He said, my house will be a house of prayer. And so let's go ahead and go to slide five, and let's jump in to his first church, the church of Ephesus. And let's start reading in Revelation chapter two. It says this, to the angel... That word angel, it's not a literal angel, but it means messenger. So whoever was delivering this message to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. I know your works of labor and your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves to be apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary but I have this against you you have abandoned the love you had at first remember then how far you have fallen repent and do the works of love at first or else I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent and then later he goes on and gives us the reward if you do I will give you the victor the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God what is that it's Eden restored, <laughs> perfect, revel perfect relationship restored if you overcome this thing of spiritual apathy. And you might be reading these things and, and you might see these corrections in your own life. And I want to tell you that you can't get a reward unless you have a correction. And so if you notice some of these, oh, I see this in my heart, don't look at it and be like, oh, no, I'm, I'm terrible. Look at it and say, if I overcome this, I get one of those 22 rewards right there. And so th this is the, the price we get by overcoming these things right here. And so you can put up that, that slide again. So the word Ephesus, that word means darling. The Ephesian church was the gold standard of church. It was God's darling church. And we even see when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, it was the only letter he wrote that gave no corrections to. This was the gold standard of church. This was their hearts were burning and on fire. So what happened from when Paul wrote the letter with no corrections till decades later, they have a correction now of you lost your love at first. I want to suggest that what happened is they got successful. They got successful. When you are living for God and burning for him and doing what he wants, he is going to bless you. The favor will come. And what happened is their, their hearts became more anchored in favor and blessing than it did burning for him. And the greatest challenge in our lives, so how does it apply to us? It's not what we do when we lose everything, but it's what do we do when God gives us everything we've ever asked for. Do we still approach him with the heart of poverty? Do we still approach him that, with a heart that trembles at his voice? This is, this is how it applies to us. And that, that word Ephesus, that darling word, 
That was a word that a Greek man would use to woo the girl he was trying to marry. What is this? This is bridal talk right here. God is speaking to them. Jesus is speaking in their language of bridal talk. I don't know if you remember or if you resonate with this, but I remember the decade of the 2010s. It really felt like the Lord is emphasizing our identity as sons and daughters of Christ. It felt like the songs that were written, the messages that were preached, it really emphasized you are a son and you're a daughter. That is your identity and you are loved by me. There's nothing you can do to change it. And it feels like this new decade, the Lord is emphasizing our bridalship. That our identity is always a son and daughter. However, we can't stay young-minded as a son and daughter. There's a maturing process that he is calling us to in this decade of, of holiness, of purity, of blamelessness, of spotlessness. And, and he's speaking to them this, this language. He gives them an affirmation. He says, hey, hard work and perseverance is not bad. Great job. I give you kudos for the day. <laughs> However, what he desires more is a heart that trembles at his voice. You know, I know what it's like to be in a room where it feels like everybody is burning except me. <laughs> Anybody been in a season like that? Where it just feels like, man, everyone is in, on fire. I don't, I don't feel anything right now. You know, I've learned that a burning heart is not a luxury. It's a responsibility. It's a fire that, that I must tend to. And there are seasons of dryness, but he entrusts to us the measure of his presence that we will jealously guard. He always entrusts to us the measure of himself that we jealously guard. And especially when I was growing up, I've been really open with my story as a teenager. I battled anxiety and fear a lot. And any time I would feel that fire of God leave, that feeling of, of burning, I really would just wait for the next conference I went to <laughs> to, get, to get blasted again, right? I would just wait. All right, Lord, you know where to find me. You know my address. Come, come meet me again. And what I would, what I would do was I would go to leaders and pastors in my life as a young person. I'd be like, my heart doesn't burn anymore. I don't feel the fire of God. And, and they would say this to me. They would say, oh, you don't go by feelings. And I would say, oh, okay. And it would really, that, that statement in itself is true. We walk by faith and not by sight. But what that, that phrase does sometimes is it numbs ourselves to the fact that I am cold. I am distant. I need an encounter. I need to burn again. And, and uh, so anyway, I, I ended up maturing past this <laughs> eventually. As I, as I got older, I realized the Lord wasn't picking me up all the time and lighting my fire. See, many times the Lord will come and wreck you to emphasize your identity as a son and daughter where you don't have to do anything. But many times he wants to emphasize your authority. And he wants to say, hey, it's time to grow up. You can do this. You can light this fire yourself. This, this, it is in you. You can, you can find a way to burn again. You can do it. And, and, and I began to learn this, this highway to his presence, really. I remember like three years ago, I was in a low, low, low season where I'm just like waiting for that next prophetic word to come. I'm like, God, I'm not feeling it. Touch me again. My heart's cold and I'm not burning. And I was listening to a Bill Johnson sermon as I said that. Bill Johnson's like the Holy Spirit sometimes. So as I said that, I heard Bill Johnson say, stop waiting on the next prophetic word. 
Go back to your place of encounter. Uh, take responsibility for your own mental health, for your own fire, and get back on track. Go back and do the things that you did at first. So immediately, something rose up in me. You know, something rises up in us as humans when we're given a measure of responsibility that says, hey, you're responsible for tending this right here. I will light it if you tend it. That's what the Lord is saying. And so I remember getting up and I remember going back to the place of encounter and said, Lord, I remember when you met me right here. Lord, I say thank you for that. Thank you for getting me through that. And little by little, the kindling starts to meet the wood and, and fire starts in my soul. We don't go by feelings, but feeling God is a huge, massive part to this Christian life. Feeling the fire of God. I felt him and I haven't felt him, and I would rather feel him than not feel him, right? I'd rather be, be feeling him, right? <laughs> and so it gives, a, it gives a remedy. Number one, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works of love you did at first. So anytime I'm in a season where I've lost my first love, here's what I do. I get alone with the Lord and I, I begin remembering when is the last time I've seen the face of God? When is the last time my heart burned? And I, I go back to maybe months or years ago, and I'm like, Lord, oh, I remember. I, I'm looking back. I, I'm looking and seeing how far I've fallen. I've fallen far. Jesus, forgive me. This is not pat a cake repentance. This is digging deep and saying, Lord, I'm sorry for, for not pursuing you. I'm sorry. And his love comes. His grace comes. And, and he little by little begins to restore the kindling and the fire burns brighter. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works of love you did at first. What's the discipline? It says, I will take away your influence if you don't do this. You know, during this season... We've seen a lot of exposure with influential people, not just in the church, but just throughout the globe. Just a lot of people's influences have, have been really taken away. And I want to suggest to you that the Lord cares more about a burning heart than you having influence. He does not take away influence to punish you. He does it so that in love you may, you may be putting your hope and trust in this influence. And he says, I want your heart. So I'm going to remove this for a season so that you may turn back to me. Because if I take that away, I want your heart. Because how you stand before me in the end matters more than the influence you carry here on the earth. And so sometimes the Lord will lovingly, for a season, take away the influence so that we may return to this place of, Lord, I'm sorry I put my hope in that thing right there. I'm burning for you again. And then little by little, he restores influence in a moment. This is our God. Everything he does is relational. We might read this and say, oh, he's going to take away my influence and favor. That's bad. He does it because he wants a burning heart more than he wants me and you being popular, having influence. This is our Jesus, the grace-filled, conquering king who burns for us. What's the reward? Like I said, eat from the fruit of the tree of life. Let's go ahead and go to slide number six. So we went through the church of Ephesus. This is the, the second church, the church of Smyrna. So let's go ahead and read this in Revelation chapter 2, 8 through 11. To the angel of the church of Smyrna, write this, the first and the last the one who is dead and came back to life says this, I know your tribulation and poverty, yet you are rich. 
I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. (laughs) I would not like to be called a synagogue of Satan. Not good. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The victor will never be harmed by the second death. So this word Smyrna, it comes from the word myrrh. How many have heard the word myrrh from the wise men who brought Jesus frankincense and myrrh? So myrrh was an embalming spice. It was sweet smelling. You would embalm the dead with it. And what the Lord was doing is he was prophesying, saying, you will be a suffering church who will suffer persecution. And you will give off, your persecution will give off a sweet myrrh aroma to the throne, to my, to my presence. You are the church of persecution, but you will bring me the greatest fragrance because of your faithfulness. He's prophesying to them, sweet-smelling myrrh, Smyrna. And so what was the affirmation? Overcoming financial hardship. What was the correction? No correction for this church of Smyrna. Go church of Smyrna, right? (laughs) But he did give a prophetic warning about persecution. And, you know, many times we read the Bible when a warning is given like this and we don't know the end. Well, I want to share you a story of this prophesied persecution that came to this church. And uh, there's a great read. I want to give you this resource. It's a book called Tried by Fire by William Bennett. And it talks about the first 1,000 years of Christianity. It's been wrecking me. And so I want to tell you the story of this persecution that actually hits this church. So it starts, the pastor of this church was named Polycarp. Everybody say Polycarp. You following me? He was the bishop. He was the head honcho, the, the man, the pastor of this persecuted church, Polycarp. And this is the story. The death of Polycarp, the bishop of the church, Smyrna. The scene begins amid a violent persecution of the Smyrnerian church. Polycarp's friends begged him to leave the city, but instead he remained holed up in a farmhouse not far from the city, doing nothing else day and night but praying for us all and for the churches all over the world, as was his usual habit to do. Three days before his arrest, he had a vision of death and said, I'm going to be burnt alive. At the end of the three days, a search party came for him and tortured one of the houseboys to learn of Polycarp's whereabouts. When they came to the house to arrest Polycarp, they found him in bed in an attic, refusing to be hustled away. Everyone was struck by his age and his calmness, surprised that the arrest of such a man could be so urgent. I love this part. Polycarp ordered that his captors be given food and drink. In return, all he asked for was one hour alone in prayer. He ended up praying out loud for two hours, and all who heard him were struck with awe, and many of them began to regret this expedition against a man so old and holy. Finally, Polycarp was placed on top of a donkey and marched into the city. The police came to him and tried to reason, saying, Come now, where is the harm in just saying that Caesar is Lord, when it will save your life? But their pleas fell on deaf ears, and eventually they threw him out of the carriage as it was moving, breaking his shins in the process. Polycarp was then led into the town arena, where a deafening cry for blood was rising among the spectators. 
There he faced the governor who urged Polycarp by saying, take the oath and I will let you go. Renounce your Christ. But Polycarp would not relent. He said this, for 86 years I have served Jesus and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The governor continued shouting in his face and threatened him with being burned at the stake. But Polycarp was steadfast and said, the fire you threaten me with cannot go burning for very long. After a while, it goes out. But what you are unaware of are the flames of future judgment and everlasting torment which are in store for the ungodly. Ooh. The witness there spoke that Polycarp's behavior the entire time was overflowing with courage, joy, and his whole countenance was beaming with grace. The crowd cried out for Polycarp to be burned alive and even supplied the firewood. Finally, the chains that bound him to the stake were fastened and the guards tried to nail him in place. But Polycarp insisted that that wasn't necessary for him, them to nail him down to the stake. And he said, let me be. He who gives me strength to endure the flames will give me strength not to flinch at the stake without you making sure of it with nails. With his final breath, he cast his eyes to heaven and said, For this and for all else besides, I praise thee, I bless thee, I glorify thee through our eternal high priest in heaven, thy beloved son, Jesus Christ, by whom and with whom be glory to thee in the Holy Ghost now for all ages to come. Amen. The flames went up and Polycarp was of this earth no longer. How does this apply to us today? I'm not saying this is a word from the Lord or this is a prophetic word. This is Tanner's opinion. I believe if we continue down this trend we are going in our country and in the world, we are but a generation, two or three generations from possibly encountering persecution to this extent. And it requires deeper revelation of the Lord that can only be found with a deeper encounter of Jesus, a deep conviction of who he is. This type of conviction does not come by just playing church. It comes by hours bathed in prayer and worship. It, it comes with hours producing oil, producing love, fear, fervent love. This God is more real to him than the fire that is in his face. And God, we pray that you would become more real to us than the persecution that may come. We pray that you would become more real to us, Lord, than the darkness that is raging on the earth right now. Oh, we need a new revelation of your face, Jesus. We need a new revelation to see the, a new facet of your presence this morning. There are depths and realms of God that have yet to be tapped into and touched. Let us be the generation that does it, Lord, in this room. We want to see you. We love you. Shake it. You know, the fastest growing church in the world is the Iranian church. And it's the most persecuted in the world. <laughs> Why? The gospel always thrives and grows with persecution. It, it thrives. You might say, oh, it is dark out there. Oh, how the bride will thrive in this hour. The Iranian church is the fastest growing church, and they do it without social media. Isn't that amazing? Social media is not evil, but 
oh my goodness, it just shows Jesus' standards for success. They do it without one flyer. They, they do it with, with no buildings. They, they would be killed on spot if they meet. They have to do it underground. And, and, and Lord, I'm not asking for darkness, but I just pray you would put such a conviction in your bride. Oh, to know you. Lastly, I want to close with, with this last church. I want to jump ahead. I just want to talk about three churches, uh, the church of Laodicea. And I can get uh, keys if that's available right now. I want to read in Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the originator of God's creation says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and I need nothing. And so you don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in fire. What is he saying? What is happening externally is not indicative of what is happening in here. You have gold, but he's saying you have false gold. If false gold exists, then true gold must exist. What is true gold refined by fire? That is this conviction of the Lord that is only birthed in prayer and worship. When we take the pain of this hour and bring it before the Lord. Maybe you have offense in your heart. Maybe you have hurt or bitterness. Bring it to Jesus and let that fire turn it into gold. <laughs> turn it into oil. Turn it into silver and gold and precious stones. I advise you. I think it's good to take the advice of Jesus. I advise you. Buy from me gold refined in fire so that you may be truly rich and white clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness, <laughs> not be exposed, an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. Jesus, spread your ointment on our eyes this morning. Give us the spirit of wisdom and spirit of revelation. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know you better. Oh, we don't want to just know a book. We don't want to just know an idea or a theme or a, or a video or a movie. We want to know the person of Jesus. Lord, we want to be able to say your name and have tears flood our eyes rather than just saying your name like a passing thought. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. Why would someone have to knock on your door? Because they're not inside. Why would Jesus have to knock at the door of this church? Because he isn't in there. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens, what is he doing? He's giving a pathway to come back. He's giving a pathway. He would be an evil father if he would just give you a rebuke and say nothing, but he, he's so loving. He says, hey, this is how you return back to me. This is how you do it. He gives it to us. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him. And he with me. He with me. That, that's, that's the promise. Jesus knocking on the door points us to a process of an ancient Jewish wedding invitation. In the days of Jesus, a bridegroom and his father would come to the door. A bride and the father would come to the door of the bride-to-be 
carrying the betrothal cup of wine and the bridal price. Standing outside, they would knock. If she fully opened the door, she was saying, yes, I will be your bride. This is something that really happened. The, the ancient Jewish culture, the groom and the father, the groom being Jesus, the father being the father, would come to the bride, the door of the bride. Who is the bride? It's us. It's the church. And he would knock on the door. If she would open and say yes, then let the marriage ceremony begin. You know, I want to suggest this. I believe Jesus will come the moment that his longing for us in heaven matches our longing for him on the earth. The spirit and the bride say yes and come. Come. It's mutual. It's not a one-party system. <laughs> it's coming. I, I believe he set the date and the time, but at the same time, I believe it's coming. What if it's contingent on our yes? That's what the psalm means when it says, my deep cries to your deep. My deep groan matches heaven's deep groan. When those two match, there is a frequency in heaven that erupts breakthrough, that erupts this, this last day glory on the earth. This is romance. This is a bridal revival. This is bridal talk, bridal love. The spirit in the bride say, come. Let's take a moment and just close our eyes and just rest. Rest in, in Jesus. And Lord, we, we anchor our souls now in, in you and you alone. We say, Jesus and nothing else. Jesus and something is sin. We cut away every other idol that our eyes have gazed at and we just say, give us Jesus and nothing else. We want nothing this culture can offer us. <laughs> we are in, but we are not of. And I just want us to take a moment. Maybe you have, like me, have read these, these corrections and you think, oh wow, I... Yikes, I feel that in my heart. Maybe think about how long has it been since my last encounter? Does my heart, does my heart tremble when he comes into a room? Do I, do I notice him like I did when I was younger, when, when I, I, I sang Here I Am to Worship 20 million times and my, my eyes were just filled with tears. Does my heart still move like that at his voice? Can I still be hungry after all these years? Take a moment and do what this, this invitation is saying. Remember. So, Lord, we remember. We remember our earliest moments with you. We, even if it was decades ago, we remember when you first touched us, when we first Heard your voice. That's what Catherine Coleman used to do. She used to constantly talk about her first encounters to keep it fresh in front of her. So, Lord, we remember. And, Lord, with our remembrance, we cry out again. I just feel an invitation in the room for fresh fire. Fresh fire. In the Old Testament, the high priest was responsible for lighting the fire. In Hebrews, it says, Jesus is now that great high priest. I just want us to take a moment, if we can just stand to our feet in this moment.
And if you need a fresh touch from the Lord, if you are, you just feel cold and, and distant, I just want us to begin opening up our mouths and raising our hands and being crying out for fresh fire. Jesus, we ache for you this morning. Lord, our deep cries out for your deep, Lord. Lord, we, we take correction as an opportunity to get an eternal reward from you. And so, Lord, we, we give you permission. Light the flame of fire on our hearts again. Oh, God, we cry out. Let's just stir up longing in this room right now. Jesus, we stir up longing in our hearts. We stir up aching in our hearts. Let's take a moment and just begin with your own words, crying out, how, do, how much do you want him? How much do you need him? Jesus, you're the beautiful one. Jesus, you're the holy one. You are the great high priest, and I pray right now for every heart in this room to have fresh fire on them. Whether they feel it now or when they go to sleep tonight, we just pray for a fresh fire. And Lord, I come against every dark swirl of the enemy from this world that has been swirling over the heads and minds that are in this room, swirls of depression, swirls of, of demonic torment, Lord, sleepless nights. Lord, I pray the peace of God would crush Satan under your feet, and I just declare that right now, Lord. And Father, we just say, come quickly, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would put a bridal heart in us this morning. Fill us with a new ache, fill us with a new longing. Lord, if we're cold, we, we're honest with our coldness. He's okay with us being honest. And so if we're dry and cold, we're honest and say, Lord, light me again. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.